All right, as we get ready to start this evening, and people are getting settled in, uh, here's the um, announcements this coming Sunday, which is July 9th. We're having a baptismal service, and it's going to be at 1 o'clock, so we'll finish up here. And so somebody would say, boy, that's pretty quick. It is. But that was what, um, uh, when he talked to the families, that's what we decided. So it'll be at 1 o'clock or whatever. It's informal, so... Uh, those who can, who want to go and be part of it and witness it, that'll be fine. And just meet over there at at one o'clock at Grace, and um, and then also pray for Camp Arete. Continue to pray for them. That's July sixteenth to twenty second. They'll be leaving on um, on the morning of the fifteenth to drive there. Pray pray for them. Also for Vacation Bible School coming up July 24th to 26th. Now this Saturday we have a memorial service for Jean Brown, and that will be at 10.30 Saturday morning at Grace, also at Grace Bible Church out on Schroeder Road, which is just uh, just a bit north of Willowbrook Mall. Uh, if there's no traffic, it takes about 20 to 25 minutes from the church here uh, up to uh, up to Grace Bible Church. So with the Beltway and uh, 249 Freeway almost all the way, it's it's not a long way. There's going to be a meal afterwards at a location that will be announced when you get there, but uh, everyone will be invited to that, so plan on that. They're going to have barbecue catered and a few other special things going on. Also, a uh, reminder to sign up for the uh, D.C. trip next year or in the Israel trip. I'm working on the details of that right now. And then Vacation Bible School, we need to continue to pray for outreach, for volunteers, for uh, people who will participate. By the way, that should be an ongoing prayer request that you have for Chafer Seminaries. We need students, and we need to pray for students and, and uh, pray for our faculty as well. Uh, we have good faculty. We need good students. Then uh, also, I think there's still a need for some Christmas trees or winter decorations for Vacation Bible School, and uh, that's in pretty good shape. Also, uh, as we sent out with the email yesterday, uh, on Sunday afternoon, Tony Franklin, uh, Morgan and Sharon Franklin's son, uh, unexpectedly went to be with the Lord. And we'll be announcing details regarding his service in the next uh, day or two. We'll send out an email related to that. But please be in prayer for uh, Morgan and Sharon and for Tony's brother, Travis. Uh, Tony has been a part of this church. He was about 12 years old when uh, we started the church, and he grew up in prep school. And many of you know uh, Morgan and Sharon. I I remember when Sharon was pregnant with, with Tony, so many of you know them from a long, long time. So it's been very um, gratifying and encouraging for them because they've received a lot of uh, emails and text messages of encouragement uh, from uh, many people here at the church and, and friends, and they know that, that we're praying for them and will continue to pray for them uh, during this time. And so we need to uh, this is why we it's important to be part of a congregation, be part of the body of Christ, is because we are to encourage each other, to strengthen one another, to comfort one another, pray for one another. And when you're not part of a local body of Christ, 
there are certain dimensions to what the church is supposed to do as, and I hate to use the term because it's such a um, popular concept in neo-psychology today, but it's the community. It is it is the body of Christ, those, those friends that we uh, develop within a congregation that are there uh, to support and encourage us when we go through difficult times. And that's where no man is an island and we're not independent. We are part of, we're all members of one another. And so it's very encouraging uh, for everyone to, to, be, uh, to be a part of, of that encouragement for them during this time of loss. Before we begin this evening, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're all prepared, spiritually prepared for our time in the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you are a God of comfort. So much so that you sent your Holy Spirit to indwell us, and he is described as the comforter, the encourager, the strengthener. And Father, he is the one who gives us the strength when often life seems overwhelming. He is the one who reminds us of your word and brings it to our our mind so that we can apply it. And Father, we're, we're thankful for these things. And Father, as we... Uh, minister to these two families, to Gene's daughter Giselle and his other uh, daughters that will be there at the service this weekend. And Father, we pray for them. We pray for uh, Morgan and Sharon. We pray for Travis. We pray for their witness, their testimony of your grace and your goodness in their, in their life, even in the midst of of uh, difficulty and challenge and tragedy. Father, we just pray that you would lift them up, and uh, we pray for them and for this congregation that we can be a real example of how the body of Christ is to work in and through our members. Father, we're thankful for your word, the way it strengthens us, because that is the focal point for how the Holy Spirit comforts us is in your word. And we pray that uh, you would continue to strengthen and encourage us as we study your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. You know, the last couple of weeks have been, um, personally, a bit of a challenge for me because Gene and I were very, very close, and I'm very, very close to Morgan and Sharon, and so are a lot of people in the congregation. Many of you have known both families, both Gene and the Franklins, for many, many years, some of you much, much longer, uh, much longer than I have. And even though we look at these times of death and departure, we understand what the Scripture says. We understand that God has a plan. It's a perfect plan. And we're reminded of Scriptures, like in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 30, we're told that God has even the hairs of our head numbered. And for some of us, that number is rapidly shrinking. But God still knows the number. And that means he knows every detail of our lives. And we're promised in the scripture, precious in the sight of the Lord or the death of his righteous ones, that he is not unaware. In fact, um, I've stated a couple of times in the last few days that that there's this uh, commercial on television 
about a cancer hospital. I don't know where it is, but it's uh, supposedly a place. They advertise that people who get uh, cancers and told that you have three months to live or six months to live, that they can go there and uh, their treatments will uh, possibly take that cancer into remission. They'll live a lot longer. And sort of the tagline they use in the commercial is God hasn't put an expiration date on your on you. And every time I hear that, I think, well, you may not see it, and I may not see it, but God has put an expiration date on every one of us. When we're born, there's a certain number of days that are allotted to us. Job 14.5 says, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. That's true for every one of us. In Psalm 139, Moses prays that, that we would number our days. In Ephesians 5, 17, we're told to redeem the time. We don't know how much time we have. That's part of our test. How are we going to use it, and how are we going to live in light of the fact that, that uh, we may not have as much as we, we think we're going to have? We all assume that we're going to live to at least... Three score and ten, a date, a time frame that Moses also mentions in Psalm 90. In fact, I, I read recently, as you know, I've read through, or I haven't quite finished, but I've read much of the biography that's come out on Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And one of the things that I learned is uh, back when he was in seminary, when I was in seminary, when George Meisinger was in seminary, when many of us were going through seminary, there was a little it wasn't a day timer. It was another little booklet that is, it got real popular with Campus Crusade people, and it was your little um, uh, appointment book, your little planner. And everybody had these, and, and everybody carried them, and you, you just weren't a Dallas man if you didn't have one in your pocket. And so uh, Arnold had one. He still carries it. He hasn't uh, caught up with the times, apparently, and put it into his iPhone or his iPad or or everything like that. But one of the things that Arnold did that I had not heard of anyone else doing was that having read through Psalm 139, where the prayer there is teach us to number our days, O Lord, that he figured if the Lord going to give us on an average three score and ten, then when he was however old he was at the time, 25, 26, 27, he figured out exactly how many days he would have from that day until his 70th birthday. And so if you were to look at his little date book, on the top left corner or right corner, one corner of every page, there's the number of days that have passed. And on the other corner, the number of days that are left until he would turn 70. When he reached 70, he recalculated the days until he was 80. And so that is to teach him to number his days and to realize he has a finite amount of time to accomplish God's plan and purpose for his life and to do all that he can uh, to serve the Lord during that given time. But even though Moses says that it's by grace that God gives us three score and ten, 70 years, some are much shorter, some are much longer, and we need to live each day uh, as if it's our last. And one of the things that I've encouraged parents over the years is that, that when you look at your children, 
you need to, from the day they're born, put them in the Lord's hands and recognize that the Lord has given, has not guaranteed that you're going to have them. And I know that the hardest thing for parents is when they outlive one of their children. That's one of the most difficult things. But God has a perfect plan. And as uh, I was told by Morgan yesterday, if I've been believing this and agreeing with this every time I've heard it from the pulpit, I can't stop now. God's plan is perfect, His will is perfect, and He's got a perfect number of days. And um, as I've thought about this uh, yesterday, today, and, and as I've read many emails from some of you, talked to some of you, had text messages from others, I know that that this is a death that has struck home in this congregation because uh, we have known that family very closely for so many years. Uh, we love that family. Uh, many of us, whether they're here tonight or listening through live stream, were uh, prep school teachers for uh, for Tony and have uh, been close, seen him grow up here at the church, saw him. Uh, from, knew him from the time he was born, and so many people have just had uh, heavy hearts today, and they've been uh, uh, a little bit sad, and that's legitimate. I think for some Christians, it's um, they think that, well, I'm not really trusting the Lord if I'm sad. I, I'm not sure that's biblical. I've tried to teach this many, many times that, that that's not biblical. Paul didn't say we don't grieve. He said, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We do grieve. And uh, I remember when my mother died, a pastor who I won't name saw me, and he made the comment. He said, well, congratulations on your mother's promotion to heaven. And at the time, I thought, that's the oddest thing I've ever heard. And I've heard him say similar things to other people at the time of, 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 the, law, of the death of a, of a loved one. And I thought, I've thought about that over the years, and that's not biblical. That's not godly. The word godly means God-like. And too often we think, well, we're encouraging somebody, and we ought to look at Jesus as much as I hate the little triviality of the WWJD bracelets and T-shirts, what would Jesus do? That's occupation with Christ. And we have one example in the Bible of Jesus going to a family who had lost a loved one and was in the midst of grief, and that's in John chapter 11. And it's a story that's familiar to many of you. It's one I refer to in all of my um, funeral and memorial service messages in John 11 Jesus is going to a family that he was very close to the family of Mary Martha and Lazarus and Lazarus has died and Lazarus has been in the grave for four days when Jesus finally shows up uh, they had uh, asked for him to come several days earlier hoping that he would get there before Lazarus died but Jesus more than 95% of the times knows the best timing 100% is more than 95% if you didn't get that. Jesus always knows the best timing. And so he, it says in the text that, that he delayed because this was for the glory of God. But when Jesus showed up, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. Everybody here ought to have it memorized. Two words, Jesus wept. 
Now, a lot of people don't understand why Jesus is weeping. It doesn't have anything to do with the physical death of, of Lazarus, who was a close friend. If you read the text carefully, Jesus looks on the crowds that are there, the mourners that are there, the people who are there who are weeping, who are sorrowful, who are, are, are grieving over the loss of their dear friend. And when he sees their grief, he weeps because he has a genuine and true compassion for those who are dealing with the loss at the time of death. It's not, Jesus doesn't come up and say, well, we know Lazarus in heaven, you know, buck up, quit crying, let's go have a party. Because he knows that when there's a death, there's a loss, there's an absence there, and it hits hard. And furthermore, he knows that that death, that that sorrow that we feel is God's wake-up call to us that something isn't right, something isn't normal. This, there's something in us when somebody dies, especially when they die young, it, it, it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't face this kind of sorrow and heartache. And, and that's God's wake-up call to tell us that death is not normal. Death is abnormal. And God is the one, though, who comforts us. And death is the result of sin. That's why it's abnormal. God did not create Adam and Eve to die. Death came because of sin. And so when we face the death of someone, especially those who are closer to us, and we grieve, we shouldn't feel bad because we're believers. We should recognize that that is, that is normal, but we're not going to grieve. We're not going to let that grief cause us to become uh, discouraged, depressed, give up on life, get mad at God, get angry at God, and all of the many wrong ways that that kind of grief is is turned by the sin nature to something that is uh, uh, that's wrong and sinful and self-destructive. So what I wanted to do uh, this evening for our own comfort and to focus our attention as we're, as a body of believers, as a congregation, as we're looking at two uh, people, families that are important to us and that we've known for many years, is to focus our attention on Psalm 143. Now, this is still part of the Samuel, uh, Samuel series because this is a Psalm of David. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 143. And at the ver- very beginning, we see that this is uh, a Psalm of David. It is a plea for grace from God in the time of distress. And David is very graphic in the way he describes the impact of his adversity on his soul at this particular time. And I've often said this, that that we need to learn to tell God how we really feel. And there's so many believers who think, oh, I just can't do that. God's going to, if I got mad at God or told him how confused I was or upset I was, that, that that's just not right. Well, wait a minute, what are you going to do with all these lament psalms in the scripture that do exactly that? Uh, David sometimes gets downright mad at God for what happened because he's trying to work it through in terms of application. And if you're not honest with yourself and with God about where you are and the problems and the struggles that you're having in your head, then you're not going to get an honest solution. And we see that all through life. If people don't accurately analyze the problem, then no matter how wonderful the solution may be, it's the wrong solution. You've got to accurately face 
what those those problems are. So as we look here at Psalm 143, I want to point out three things by way of, of introduction. First of all, the psalmist is crying out to God to intercede graciously in his life. He knows he's not worthy of God's sustenance. He knows he's not worthy of God inter interceding and intervening in his life, but he is turning to God and pleading for him in grace because grace means it's undeserved merit. We, we don't deserve it. We're all fallen, corrupt sinners. And yet, and again and again, we see this throughout the Psalms. Many of the themes that we see in many, many other Psalms are echoed in Psalm 143. Second thing we note is that, that this is a lament Psalm. And as we've studied types of Psalms in the past, we've seen that uh, the communal, there's a communal or national lament where it's talking about the nation going through some crisis. And then we have individual laments where somebody is expressing a complaint to God. Now, complaining and murmuring is viewed as a sin in Ephesians, but that's complaining and murmuring to one another. This is complaining to God. He's the one we're supposed to complain to about the circumstances and situations in life because he's the one who has the solution uh, to the problems. And so that's what we see here in all of these different lament psalms um, that are expressing a complaint about what the psalmist is going through. He's going through difficult times, doesn't understand what God's doing at that particular time or how God's going to rescue him because things are, 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 are definitely very, very bad. So this is a lament psalm. Uh, in this case, we don't know the exact nature of it. All we're told is this is a psalm of David. David is the author, but we're not told a particular time. It might be during the time of oppression by Saul when he's in the wilderness. It might be later on, which we'll study when we get into 2 Samuel, a time uh, when he is run out of Jerusalem and across the Jordan by the Absalom rebellion. It could be some other time when he is the object of scorn and the object of ridicule and slander, uh, for whatever reason, within the nation. But I think that when we have these Davidic Psalms, when there's no circumstances that are given, when we read them, uh, there aren't specifics given. And that's so that we can generalize and universalize these circumstances and we can see how that situation applies to our own life. For example, in verse 3, David is expressing the problem. He says, the enemy has persecuted my soul. Well, who's the enemy? How are they pursuing your soul? We don't know. So we can apply that in some different ways. For example, uh, at times we may face specific enemies. We may have opposition from family. We can have opposition from coworkers. We can have opposition from friends. There can be opposition from systems or organizations or governments which personally oppose us. Or it may be more general. As believers, we live in a fallen world. We live in, in the cosmic system, a corrupt world with corrupt believers. And it may be that the opposition that we're facing, the hostility we're facing, is more indirect uh, through the cosmic system. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5 that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Now, Satan is finite. He's not omnipresent, so he's not attacking everybody. But I think there, Satan not only represents the individual, uh, Lucifer, the fallen angel, but also all of his minions, all of the demons, all of the fallen angels, Satan and his troops. We often do that when you talk about Russia. We may talk about Putin, but we're talking about Putin in terms of all of Russia, the policies of the Russian government and everything that they're going to do. Uh, when we were involved in, in um, uh, the American War for Independence, I'll use that as an illustration since today is uh, July 4th and Independence Day, People oppose the enemy as George III, but George III wasn't out on any of those battlefields. It was his representatives, the, the redcoats that were out there. So, so Satan uses his minions, the demons, to carry out his opposition to Christians and to the church. And we don't know it, if there's anything specific going on there because they're invisible. But he also works indirectly through the cosmic system, through religious systems, philosophical systems, people who are committed ideologically to that which is completely hostile to what Christians are doing and, and to Christianity. And then we have to deal with, the own, with our own uh, enemy within ourselves, which is the sin nature and other people's sin nature that are surrounding us. So... When David talks about enemies, we can universalize that and principalize it to the fact that we all deal with enemies as Christians in spiritual warfare that are pursuing us. And that relates to the negative circumstances of life living in a fallen world. And we live in a fallen world and we're going to face sickness and we're going to face wars and famines. And yes, we're going to face death and the death of those who are very dear to us. Third thing we ought to see in terms of an introduction is that often commentators take the statements in verse 2, do not enter into judgment with your servant, as an expression of implied confession. I don't think that's true at all. I think it's what, what's going on here is David's, David says, don't treat me on the basis of your righteousness because what he's asking is treat me on the basis of your grace. Sometimes we express a... a a, express something that's positive by, a, first of all, stating a negative. Don't do that uh, because we want the opposite to take place. So what we see as we enter into this 12-verse psalm is in the first six verses we have a plea for Yahweh to graciously deliver uh, in righteousness from our enemies, that God is the one who intercedes. God is our fortress. He's our strong tower. He is the one who provides and protects us in the midst of adversity. He is the one who sustains us. And then in the second half of the psalm, there is an appeal to Yahweh to guide and direct us because our trust is in him. And so these these are the two parts. And in the first um, first verse, we see that direct supplication to God, which is often how a lament psalm is going to is going to begin. So, at the very beginning, in these first six verses, we learn that when we face crises in life, we are to express our complaints to God in prayer. And so, this opens with his cry to God to listen to him and to pay attention to his prayers. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. 
In your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Now, what he is saying in this first opening prayer is just a, a plea to God to pay attention to him, to listen to his, uh, to his prayers. And he uses uh, a synonymous parallelism in those first two lines. Hear my prayer, give ear to my supplication, so that hear and give ear are synonyms expressing the same thing, saying, Lord, just listen to me. And when he opens with the call, Lord, to hear my prayer, he uses a standard word for hear or to listen, Shema, and it's to hear, to listen to my uh, prayer. And the other word, give ear, is from the is a verb from the noun, uh, which means ear, and it means to listen to your ears. So they're accurately translated. Hear my prayer, give uh, ear uh, to my supplications, and and these two words that are translated prayer and supplication are also synonyms. The first is the word uh, uh, tefillah which is where we get our word, the, you often hear the tefillim. The tefillim are the uh, boxes that contain the law that are wrapped on the, the hands and the forehead that you'll see Orthodox Jews wear by their literal application of, of Deuteronomy 6.5 to bind the law on your hands and on, on your forehead. And so those are called tefillim. It's uh, the word for prayer. And the word for supplication is a synonym for that, and it's uh, tachanan. And if you notice, the root of that is kanan, which has the idea of, which is the verb for being merciful. So it's formed on that, that root. A supplication is a cry to God to be merciful in our lives in the midst of, um, in the midst of difficulty. And we often find these two things connected, uh, calling upon God to hear and calling upon God to be merciful in many of the, in many of the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 4-3 we read, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. That is David expressing his confidence that God will, uh, will listen to us. And then in Psalm 27, 7, we have the same kind of language here. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, Shema. But then it's parallel to have mercy. So in synonymous parallelism, uh, you have hear and be merciful to me. These are understood to express very closely related ideas. And the word there for mercy is Hanan which means to be to show favor to show grace or to be merciful toward me. And we see the same thing in Psalm 30 verse 10, hear O Lord and have mercy on me. Lord be my aidser, my helper, the one is going to strengthen and sustain me. We also have more verses that talk about mercy. Psalm 4:1, hear me O when I call O God of my righteousness, you've relieved me in my distress. See, he's admitting, you know, I'm in distress. I'm going through a difficult time. This is, this is almost too much for me. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Psalm 6-2, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak, O Lord, heal me or deliver me, for my bones are troubled. 
I don't think you've ever experienced depression or anxiety until you think that it's just marrow deep in your bones. And several times David expresses his sorrow, his anxiety, even his guilt over sin by how it affects him so that his bones and his muscles are sore, not from working out, but from his sorrow, his grief, and his anxiety. Psalm 25, 16, he says, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. You know, in these lament psalms, he is honest about the heartache that he is facing. And in Psalm 119, 132, he says, Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is towards those who love your names. And twice we read in here, in these verses I've selected, that he is merciful to those who love him and to those who are godly, those who are walking uh, with the Lord. God's promise there is that he will turn and he will he will listen. So as we look at that, we the first two verses is a cry to God to pay attention to what he's going through and to listen to his prayers. And the second two lines express the basis for that. See, what I pointed out, and you've heard me so many times, is that these prayers are well thought out and constructed. They're not just simply off-the-cuff, spontaneous, shallow prayers, but he's focusing his attention on the essence of God. And two particular aspects of God's essence here are his faithfulness, uh, which is the word on the left, emuna, which is also related to the word for truth. So God is faithful in his truth. He's consistent. He's stable. It's the word from the root amen, the verb, aman. And that root and the noun that's related to that also has the idea of stability. That's where we get the nuance of faithfulness. It's used to describe the foundation of the pillars of the temple. Uh, That gives them their foundation and so that which is stable. And it's very much related to also the idea of faith and belief. And then the word righteousness, God's righteousness, the standard of his integrity. He is tzedakah. He is absolutely perfect and righteous in all that he he does. And so uh, the word that introduces this, it's translated in, in your faithfulness and in your righteousness, is the Hebrew preposition ba, which has a wide range of meaning. And I think that it... It's not talking about something that's in his faithfulness, like you'd put something in a box, but it's the idea of on the basis of or by means of your faithfulness and and your righteousness. He's saying, God, you're a faithful God and you're a righteous God. And when we read this in the Psalms, we always have to think back that these are terms that are, are intimately related to God's covenant that he is Yahweh, the God of the covenant to Israel. He's always faithful to his covenant. He made a covenant with David. Uh, This could be later than this event. We don't know, but David would still appeal to God's faithfulness to his covenant to Israel, that God would be faithful to him and his word. And for us as church-age believers, we wouldn't be appealing necessarily to the faithfulness to his covenant with with, Israel. Uh, with Israel, but we would be appealing to his faithfulness to us, to his word, and to the promises that he has made to us, and that God is always going to be consistent with that. And this, whenever we talk about God's faithfulness, it should always remind us of the tremendous passage in Lamentations chapter 3 that was written by Jeremiah 
after he's lost everything. Uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed by Nebuchadnezzar's army. The temple is destroyed. Everything in the southern kingdom is in ruins. And Jeremiah is reflecting upon what was. He has lost everything. He is in a state of profound grief, and he is lamenting. He's complaining before the Lord. That's why it's called lamentation. He says, remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. That's the bitterness of my experience. That's what happens at death. We lose somebody. There's a bitterness there of, of our experience. It's hard. It's difficult. When, when somebody has a house that burns down, I understand also that's just a terrible, terrible loss. Um, and, when, and so what Jeremiah is saying here is when I remember this, he says, Remember my affliction, my roaming, the wormwood, the gall, the bitterness of my experience. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Now, there are some people who say, oh, you see, you're not applying doctrine if your soul sinks within you. And that's just garbage. I think Paul called it scubalon. It's, it's a horse manure, cow manure. Because we're human beings. We, when Jesus was going to the cross, at Gethsemane it uses these words uh, lupeo he sorrowed he grieved Uh, that's the emotion that's there it's what you do with the emotion that's a sin you can't change the emotion and and uh, that's the emotion that's there as Jeremiah looks at what's going on he says this I recall to mind and therefore I have hope it's the content in your thinking that gives you hope that's what comes from the from the word of God you know, when we look in the New Testament, there's one passage in Second uh, Corinthians that focuses attention on God's comfort. And that's what we're, we're going to see the same principle in what we're studying here. In Second Corinthians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our thlipsis, in all of our tribulation, all of our adversity. How does he comfort us? doesn't say here. He comforts us, though, so that later we are able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, if we look at that word comforted, if we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is the rapture passage where Paul is talking about or answering the question from the Thessalonians, say, well, what happens to those who die? And he talks to them about uh, that that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, that is, those those who uh, who have died physically. And at the end of talking about the rapture, he says, comfort one another with these words. Comfort is done through the content of Scripture. So he's, he's focusing their attention on the fact that we, he begins that section by saying, we grieve but not like those who have no hope because we have believed in Jesus. And then he goes on to say that the Lord's going to come back in the, in the clouds and uh, those who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds and um, we're preceded immediately by those who are dead in Christ will rise first. So we're comfort by the Word, God the Holy Spirit. How many times have you heard me say this? The Word of God plus the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comforts with His Word, and so we have to know His, His Word. So then we come to the second verse here in verse 2, 
And David says, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. And what he's saying there is that, that, that don't judge me, don't deal with me and my adversity on the basis of whether or not I deserve it. Deal with me on the basis of your grace. Don't enter into judgment. Don't enter into righteousness. He's, David is reminding God that he knows that he's a sinner and that he's not worthy and that he's pleading for God to deal with him not on the basis of what he deserves but what he, he doesn't deserve because no one in God's sight, no one living in your sight is righteous. Then we come to verse 3, and he begins to outline and describe uh, what's going on. Listen to the language here, how picturesque it is. The enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I've underlined these, these terms. He's persecuted my soul. I'm persecuted. I'm crushed. I live in darkness. I've talked to many people, and some of you have gone through times when you've lost someone, you've lost a job, you've had extended unemployment. Uh, maybe you dealt with a disease, and, and you went through a time where you just thought there was no hope. You just got down to the very bottom, and God takes us there at times in order to get our attention and to, to, to look to him. And it's a time when, when it can be very, very dark in people's lives. And that's where David is. That's what he's describing. He said, I've been fighting with these enemies for so long, I, I don't think it'll ever end. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. It's, it's hopeless. I'm, I have, there's no light in my life. I, it's darkness. And, uh, and in verse 4, he says, my spirit is overwhelmed. We'll look at the details here in terms of the terms, uh, the words that are used in the Hebrew. When he says, the enemy has persecuted my soul, he's saying here, uh, the enemy has pursued my soul. I am under attack. I am under assault. They are hunting me. They are seeking to destroy my life. And as a result, David has become tired and weary and on the verge of hopelessness. The word is, he crushed my life is the word adakah. It's not used by, it means to be totally uh, totally crushed and and brought down uh, by circumstances. And so it also takes us back to Psalm uh, 142, which we studied already. It's uh, in relation to its being in the cave of Adullam, a uh, contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. And in verse 6, because these two psalms are closely related, uh, David there cried out to God, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're stronger than I. Psalm 94, 5, he says, re related to God praying for his enemies, he says, they break in pieces your enemy. That's his same word, daka. He breaks, he's saying here about his enemies, they pursue me, they break my life, they're crushing me. It's overwhelming. I can't handle the adversity. I'm weighed down by it. It's too much for me. It's like being in the grave, dwelling in darkness like those who have long been dead. They're, they're in Sheol. They're in darkness. There's no light. There's no hope. They're just, it, it's a death-like experience. And he goes on to describe this in verse 4. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. Now, that first word, that first phrase, my spirit is overwhelmed, 
is the hithbile, which is a causative stem. It's been caused to be overwhelmed, and it's the idea of being faint or being uh, or just fading away to death. I, I just, I've just lost. It's he's expressing that he's he's almost giving up on life because he's so hopeless. And he says, "My heart within me is distressed." And that word is shamam. It's only used here. It's in a rare form, even the hatpaal. And it means to be driven to numbness. That's how Al Ross translates that. And, and uh, Ross is just brilliant in his ability to, to express uh, what the Hebrew says. Driven to numbness. My heart within me is numb. I just don't have any feelings anymore. I'm just overwhelmed. My heart within me is numb. It's at the point of despair. And then what's the solution? Now he turns. See, when we read this, we identify with that, and he gives us the solution. The Bible just doesn't say, see, it stops there with being overwhelmed, and life's, life's tough, and then you die. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of your hands. And when we look at this verse, we see three key words that are that are synonyms. I remember, I meditate, I muse. These are all words used for the reflection of God's word. And they're words that describe uh, meditation. What's the solution? I think about who you are, what you've done. When he says, I remember the days of old, he's not talking about the good times earlier in his life. He's talking about remembering what God has done in grace to his people since the beginning of time, since the fall. How God's grace was poured out on the on Adam, on the believers between Adam and Noah, on Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How God sustained them when he judged the rest of the earth. All through the time when he calls Abraham, God's provision for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, God's provision for the Jewish people coming out of Exodus. That's what he's doing. He's, but to do that, you have to have content in your soul. You have to know those episodes, those stories, those people. You have to be able, apart from your Bible, to think your way through what those events are in Scripture so that you can remind yourself that God did this for Abraham. He did this for Isaac. He did this for Moses. He did it for Joshua. He did it for, uh, for Gideon. He did this for uh, David. Uh, God is the one who provides. So David is saying here, I remember the things that God has done in human history up to this point. And it's parallel with the next line, I meditate on all your works, so that meditate involves remembering, but this word has the idea of moaning or speaking. And and when people memorize, they'll, they'll, they'll mutter it under their breath, they're, they're rehearsing. Uh, you, I, when I memorize scripture, I, I say it out loud. I try to remember it that way. And, and that's part of meditation and going over it again and again and again. And the days of old, is, is par- that phrase is par- uh, parallel to all your works. That's why it's not, he's just not remembering the good times in his life when things was, were great and he didn't have all this adversity. And, and it was just him and God out with the sheep and he was uh, meditating on God's word. He's remembering the historic acts of God in history, all of his works. And he says, I muse on the work of your hands. Again, that's a parallel, uh, a synonymous parallelism to all your works. 
And then the response to this is what's then given in verse 6. He says, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my prosecutors, I mean persecutors, for they are stronger than I am. So again, he, he has this idea, I spread out my hands. This is the idea of going prostrate, prostrate before God so that he is pleading with God. He is in a and, the, and Jews are very, Middle Eastern people are very expressive. They're very emotional. And, and this is their position in prayer. It's not a Western European type position in prayer. We're much more sedate than that. But when they are pleading with God, they'll go down on their knees and face down on the ground with their arms outstretched, pleading with God. That's what he means when he says, I spread out my hands uh, to you. My soul longs for you uh, like a thirsty land. And what an image that is. Those of you who've been around Texas remember the drought back in we had back around 2011, 2012, the ground would just soak up. You go out every morning to your, to your garden and your plants are turning brown and the, the ground, you, you, you water and you go out an hour later and where'd all that water go? It just dried up so quickly. So there's a longing on the soul of a person. That's what he's expressing. I long for you to intervene. I long for you to get involved in my life. And this leads him to his plea with God beginning in in uh, verse 7 and uh, to the end of the psalm, pleading with God to guide and preserve him in the midst of this adversity, praying that God, using that promise, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you're trusting God and he will guide and direct your paths. That's the same idea that's present here, that in the midst of this, God is the one who will answer his prayer and God will give him the wisdom to make the right decisions in the midst of the pressure cooker of this adversity. In Psalm 143.7, again, he's saying to God, it's parallel to the beginning in verse 1, hear my prayer and give ear to my supplication here. It's answer me speedily. He says, hurry up. He's putting a little pressure on God, make haste. Literally, it reads, make haste, answer me. But this could be a figure of speech written in what's called a hendiadis, which is when you have a close connection between the two phrases, and it's really showing that one is an adjective for the, or an adverb for the other, and that would be then translated, answer me quickly, answer me speedily, which is how it's translated here in the uh, New King James. Hurry up, O Lord, my spirit fails. I'm falling apart. I can't go on. I, I'm overwhelmed by this. It's, it's too much for me. And then he says, don't hide your face from me. Now, this is an idiom uh, that expresses to be before God's face, to have God's face shine upon you, is to be the recipient of God's grace and his goodness. And hiding God's face is to withhold his grace. So he's saying here, in effect, don't hide your face from me. Don't withhold your grace from me. Lest I be like those who go down into the pit. The pit is Sheol. He says, I don't want to be like those who are dead. So he's going back and picking up that imagery of those who uh, are dwelling in darkness, who have long been dead back at the end of verse 3. And then he caused to God, cause me to hear your uh, loving kindness in the morning. Notice that, that it, again, there's that contrast with, with 
in the pit there's darkness and it seems hopeless there's no light but he says cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning when when the sun comes up when there's light when there is a is a uh, a fresh day i think i got this slide out of order this is these verses relate to uh by your favor we'll skip to this and then go back remember he says in verse um uh verse 7 don't uh hide your face from me well these are some other places that use that idiom Lord, by your favor, you've made my mountain stand strong. My mountain would refer to his position. You hid your face and I was troubled. That was you withheld your grace from me and I was troubled. Psalm 27, 9 says, don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. It's a, it's a plea for God to be gracious to him. Same thing in Psalm 102, 2. Don't hide your face from me parallel to incline your ear to me listen to me pay attention to me be gracious to me okay psalm 143 says cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning for in you i do trust cause me to know the way in which i should walk for i lift up my soul do you see the prayer here is for guidance in the midst of this adversity and psalm in this verse when he says he says cause me to hear and then he says, cause me to know. And that language, cause me to hear and cause me to know, is that he wants instruction. God guides us through what we learn about his word. Again, it takes us back to this idea that God directs through his, uh, through his word. He is the one who uh, provides guidance and direction for us. He, uh, this is what the psalmist says in verse 5 about meditating on all your works and meditating, remembering what you have revealed to us. Okay, so cause me to hear, cause me to know. And then he says, your loving kindness, and this is that Hebrew word chesed, is faithful, loyal love, taking us back to God's covenant promises. And he says, for in you I do trust. I am confident. I am uh, safe and secure in you. You're the one who has revealed yourself. You will be faithful to your word. That's your faithful, loyal love is the idea in loving kindness. And then he says, cause me to know the way in which I should walk for I lift up my soul to you. He's putting his life in God's hands. Uh, often the word soul, when it's used like this, my soul is a reference to my life. Soul is just another way of talking about that. We've many times covered the old, um, for many, many, many centuries, the idea that if so, if so many people died, it would be reported that 530 souls were lost. So soul is a, just a synonym for life. So he's saying, I lift up my life to you. He's, he's saying, I'm putting my life in your hands because right now it seems I'm pretty hopeless and my enemies seem to have the upper hand and I'm discouraged, I'm despairing. And I'm overwhelmed by the circumstances, but I'm going to put my life in your hands and trust you. And there will be a, a, a morning and I will reflect on the, the light of your glory. In verse nine, he says, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies and you I take shelter. This is a Hebrew word we've seen many, many times in the Psalms. It's the word natsal, which means to remove some negative circumstances or to rescue us from a situation or to deliver us. Sometimes it's par parallel to the word yasha for salvation. Deliver me from my enemies. This isn't talking about 
or eternal salvation deliverance from, from these circumstances. And, uh, and whoever these enemies are, maybe it's the just living in a corrupt world that we're praying that God would strengthen us and that we would be able to rise above the circumstances and have that joy that the Lord shares with us that is our perfect happiness that is above and beyond the circumstances. Jesus had that perfect joy even when he was struggling with the sorrow and the grief as he anticipated the cross. And then he says, deliver me in you, I take shelter. This is why God should deliver him because we're taking our shelter, we're looking to him uh, for that uh, protection. It's interesting, the Hebrew word that is translated as shelter here is a word that is uh, related uh, etymologically to a, the word for confidence or hope. So it's, it's a, not just taking shelter, but I'm taking, I, I am putting myself in your hands that I may have hope and confidence in the future. And then in verse 10, he says, teach me to do your will. So he's prayed for guidance, but that guidance doesn't come by God just sort of going poof and this is what you do. It comes through teaching. It comes through instruction of the word. It comes to learning about who he is. It's that, that, that content that we emphasize here. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. And that word for teach is the Hebrew word lamad, which means to guide, direct, to bring about a learning process. It's the root for the word Talmud. What are the consonants in Talmud? T-L-M-D. It's that L-M-D that's the root. And so um, uh, when you go to Israel, you learn that the students are called Talmudim. And that's just that's on that same same root. So a lot of words are built off of that, and that's the root lamad. Uh, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. He wants to do what God uh, God uh, will reveal to him, and he is seeking God's guidance and direction, which is why he says, "Lead me in the land of uprightness," which is the word nacha, which has that idea of lead, guide, direct me but it comes through the teaching of the word. And then in verse 11, he says, Revive me, O Lord, which is from the word for hayah, uh, for life. He says, bring me back to life. He's like one who's living like a dead person, is what he's described back in verses 3 and 4. And he says, revive me, bring me back to life for your namesake. And that is the the idiom for your namesake is on the basis of your character. Your character is at stake here because I've trusted in you. I've claimed promises related to your essence. Your very character, your honor, your reputation is at stake here. So revive me for the sake of your reputation. Why? Because your righteousness, for your righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And it's interesting because here you have this word sarah, which is the noun for distress or for straits or for adversity or for pressure. And in the last verse, the verb form is used uh, and destroy all those who afflict my soul. That's the verb form. So those have to be connected. So in verse 11, it's 
for your righteous sake, bring my soul out of trouble. Who causes that trouble? Those who afflict my soul, the enemies, those who trouble my soul. It would have been better to have used the same word in both places so people would see that, that connection. And why should God do it? Because he says, I'm your servant. So it gives us a great structure here on how to pray, on how to plead with God, on how to set up a rational case, a biblical case to God based on his character, based on the word, as to why he should intercede and intervene in our lives and strengthen us even when we're walking through that death-shadowed valley, when things are really dark, when it doesn't seem like there's any light, when it seems like we are being crushed by the external circumstances of life. God is the one who is going to renew us. He's the one who's going to be faithful to us, and he's the one who is going to guide and direct us even in the midst of that, uh, that darkness. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this, the comfort of your word, the comfort of these psalms. And Father, we pray that as we face the sorrows in life, the griefs of life, the difficulties and adversities, that we uh, will often experience the same emotions, the same sense of uh, despair, the same sense of desperation and depression that seems evident in David at this time. But we must do what he did. We must think through who you are. We must think through your word and what you taught us. We must think through what you have done in the past. And we must be reminded of your word, for that is the source of comfort. And as we grow and mature through those times of testing, it builds in us a confidence in your word and in your person that enables us then to comfort others. As Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, that we comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. And that's not just putting our arm around somebody, hugging somebody, although those things are fine and wonderful, but it, it goes beyond that to a focus on your word and being comforted by you and God the Holy Spirit, our comforter, who uses your word to strengthen us. And Father, we know that it is only your word that can give us strength and hope and confidence to face the challenges and the horrors sometimes of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.